Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Happy Friday and uh, happy holidays. We're uh, running into uh, Christmas week next week, uh, our last day of work before uh, before Christmas Eve and Christmas. Your, your last day of work. You know, are you working Monday? Yeah, I'm working Monday. On Christmas the, Eve. The membership team is, is cranking Dude, the you, data until December 31st, 11, 2359 on December 31st. Mo so members. You glory boys on the periodical side. Um, take your fun vacation to uh, where are you going? New Hampshire, Vermont? New Hampshire, yeah. Vermont. Yeah, yeah, do a little uh, cross country skiing. Hopefully, oh, it yep. sounds frostian. It'll be lovely. It sounds poetic. Yes, right. So obviously, some big news yesterday with uh, Secretary Mattis uh, tendering his resignation. Man, rocket, rocking the world there. Yeah, yeah. and I, I saw him yesterday. Uh, oh yeah, t- talk not, about not that. that I'm famous, but uh, I was at uh, an event that we talked about last week. Uh, so Vice Admiral Scott Sterney, the former Fifth Fleet commander who passed away, uh, you know, all, all reports uh, point to um, uh, suicide, which is um, you know, just hor- horrible for family, for everybody who knew him. Uh, and I served with him in a, an F-18 squadron. I was a squadron intel officer uh, 30 years ago in that squadron. Uh, and I had you know, crossed paths with uh, Sterno over the years, saw him most recently at... Um, uh, the International Sea Power Symposium up in Newport at the War College in September, and he seemed great, um, you know, but we all know that, uh, you know, things can be different on the inside of a human being than on the on the outside. So anyway, he was interred yesterday at Arlington National Cemetery. Hundreds of people showed up, lots of old shipmates and squadron mates, and uh, it was good to uh, see all of them, although for the wrong reasons. Um, but then we... Um, you know, went from the visitor center at Arlington and and followed the hearse and everything around through the cemetery and up up the hill towards Fort Myer and everyone parked and walked up uh, to the gravesite and there was a tent there because the weather was a little inclement and standing at the tent just inside the tent was uh, Secretary Mattis uh, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, General Dunford uh, the CNO was there as well former CNO Jay Johnson who Sterno had worked for. Uh, as an aide uh, some 20 years ago, I think. Uh, anyway, it was good to see all of them, but it was uh, I was impressed to see uh, Secretary Mattis uh, and the chairman uh, at the gravesite. Uh, you know, somber occasion, uh, and then there was a uh, reception afterwards at the Fort Myers Oak Club, and, you know, good to catch up with, uh, with old shipmates. Um, and then, you know, left uh, that event, uh, and the next thing, you know, the news was breaking that Secretary Mattis had tendered his resignation um, because of a difference of opinion. Uh, policy, you know, significant policy decision that had come out from the president earlier this week, uh, just two days ago, saying that it's time to pull U.S. forces out of Syria. And, uh, you know, Secretary Mattis and many, many people uh, have said that is a big mistake. And it was uh, a policy that Secretary Mattis apparently, you know, just could not go along with and, you know, felt like it was time for him to... uh, uh, you know, to leave uh, President Trump's national security team. So very sad to see him go. I think he was a, you know, a very calm, steady hand on the tiller uh, in, you know, perhaps very turbulent times. Um, you know, so it, it's going to be interesting to see who comes in in his place. I, I think it'll be hard to fill, you know, Secretary Mattis's shoes. Um, well, let's, uh, USNI News has the uh, text of his letter 
uh, online. So if you haven't had a chance to read it, uh, yeah, I read I, it this I morning. Entreat uh, all of the listeners and viewers on Facebook Live to check it out. But let let me quote um, a few passages fr- from it here. So. Um, in the third paragraph, he says, "Our one core belief I have always held is that our strength as a nation is inextricably linked to the strength of our unique and comprehensive system of alliances and partnerships." So that's obviously speaking about NATO, particularly. And then the next paragraph, he says, "Similarly, I believe we must be resolute and unambiguous in our approach to those countries." whose strategic interests are increasingly in tension with ours. Um, And as has been well broadcast, the last paragraph um, here says, because you have the right to have a Secretary of Defense whose views are better aligned with yours on these and other subjects, I believe it is right for me to step down from my position. Just amazing, uh, sort of at once um, pointed yet... um, you know, sort of timeless language. I, I think that document will, will will transcend time in terms of, uh, you know, it'll be studied at the War College. For I, I think you're right. And I, I uh, you know, you mentioned NATO as uh, something that he was alluding to in that language about partnerships and alliances. Uh, clearly, outside of NATO, I mean, there's lots of others, right? The, the Philippines, Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, our alliances and partnerships uh, here in this hemisphere, uh, you know, everything that we do, uh, as Secretary Mattis pointed out many, many times, every time he had ever been in battle, it had been with allies and partners. And he was in combat many, many times in his during his career. So, um, you know, this is, and and getting, you know, straight to the, the, uh, the point about combat, uh, ISIL and Syria, um, you know, that is a a battle and, you know, a struggle that is incredibly complex in an area of the world that is, uh, you know, uh, unbelievably complex, Um, you know, and the the Iranians are in Syria, Uh, the Russians are in Syria, there's a civil war going on in Syria, we have, it impacts our Jordanian allies, the Israelis, it impacts our NATO ally, Turkey. Um, a lot of those, uh, there's just incredible nuances and complexities to that whole region. Uh, and the, you know, unraveling the U.S. commitment there is is something that's going to leave all of those countries, uh, you know, a, a power vacuum for the that the Iranians and the Russians will be happy to fill. Uh, you know, President Putin came out yesterday and, and praised President Trump's decision to pull out of Syria. Of course he did. This is, you know, perfectly in line with uh, with Russian foreign policy goals. Uh, but, uh, you know, our, our allies, uh, the Iraqis, uh, the YPG, the, uh, the Jordanians, where, you know, there's been a lot of uh, Syrian... Uh, refugees uh, have moved into and and been welcomed by the Jordanians at our request. Uh, so this impacts you know all of those countries you know surrounding countries and and it sends a clear message that I think Secretary Mattis was uh, you know pointing to that uh, you know we may not really care all that much about our alliances and our partnerships and and I, that was something that you know the Secretary Mattis just it just could not countenance anymore. So. Uh, I, I know he'll be missed in the building. I, I know people who uh, work in the Pentagon and who have uh, praised his leadership and his, um, you know, resolute, you know, sort of stay the course, be calm, carry on, get it done. 
Um, you know, he's not a man of, uh, of drama. Uh, and, you know, it'll be really interesting, you know, in the next month or so to see who is uh, nominated to take his place. So uh, I, I don't see this as, you know, this is, uh, in my view, you know, particularly bad news today. Absolutely. Um, and as you described, uh, Sec- Secretary Mattis, General Mattis is highly regarded among uh, the post 9-11 uh, warfighters and veterans, uh, you know, just Google Mattis quotes and, and you'll be blown away by the things he's, he's said. He's a quote machine and uh, a very respected uh, uh, leader. Um, hello to Cindy Wilson on Facebook Live. Uh, she's checking in. She is the niece of William Steer, who was aboard the USS Indianapolis in World War II. Wow. So that's a cool bit of history. Um, obviously, the story about the Indianapolis is uh, is. Uh, one where there are many lessons learned, and this is a nice segue to today's topic and our guest. Yeah, our guest today is a Navy surface warfare officer joining us from uh, Damneck, Virginia Beach. His name is Lieutenant Commander Jason Fight, U.S. Navy. His article is in the December issue of Proceedings, uh, starts on page... Fifty-eight. I don't have my glasses on. Fifty-eight and fifty-nine. Uh, and God, it is called. Old. I know I'm old, man. It is called "Study the Past to Win Today." Study the Past to Win Today. Six cornerstones of sea control can teach young officers how to fight and win. Uh, Jason, fight. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. How are things down in Damneck? Is the uh, is the, this uh, winter storm passing by and kind of roughing up the seas out there? Uh, yeah, so yesterday it was 40 degrees, today it is 60 degrees and rainy. Yeah, that's Virginia Beach in the winter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, back and forth, up and down. Uh, okay, well, we were talking just before we went on air here that uh, your essay uh, was submitted in the um, inaugural CNO Naval History Essay Contest, which we started in uh, 2017. We were talking about the fact that um, 292 people wrote essays for that essay contest. Uh, yours was one of the top essays. Uh, it was not a, a prize winner, but it was one of the several that were beyond first, second, third prize that we uh, wanted to publish. And, and uh, it took us a while to get around to publishing all of those, but we published yours now in the December issue. Uh, and it's a great piece. So talk through us, uh, th- talk through it a little bit with us and uh, just highlight some of the battles that you um, so, uh, you know, well have highlighted here and the lessons uh, from those, you know, battles, naval battles, some of them, you know, 200 years ago uh, and the lessons that they teach, you know, young officers today. Yeah, thanks. Well, so I've, I've, I've used this for a while now when, when uh, you know, I was a JG and got selected to go teach uh, at NROTC, and they told me that I was going to be teaching history. I, was, I, I loved the idea. I was a history major in school. I've always loved history. And one of the things that I've noticed is just young people in general, a lot of them tend to hate history, and, I, and I've just never understood that because I found it so compelling. And I think one of the reasons is that no one hates history. They hate history teachers. Uh, because because you know, <clears throat> history becomes about just rote memorization of people and dates. Um, but really, history, when taught well, when taught correctly, it's storytelling. And everyone loves stories. They love movies. They love, you know, uh, fiction books. People love a good story. And really, when you teach history that way, uh, I think they end up loving it, which is great because then they actually learn um, – not only about the past, but how to address contemporary problems. So I was just really 
<clears throat> kind of disheartened when I was a division officer at how few of my peers understood our own history. And so when I went to ROTC, I said, you know what I need? I need a contextual framework for people to understand history. Instead of rote memorization dates, I need to give them a framework to which they can understand history. And around that time, I had read um, Wayne P. Hughes' excellent work, Fleet Tactics and Coastal Combat. Uh, towards the beginning of that, he's got a great first chapter uh, on the six cornerstones of naval tactics. So what I did is I took those six cornerstones, and that's the first thing I taught in my naval history classes. And then I used that. That was on every quiz, every test. If they forgot everything else I ever taught them, they knew the six cornerstones, and they knew how to apply it to the past, which hopefully will help them uh, you know, apply it to the future. So, uh, Jason, what year roughly was uh, Captain Hughes' Fleet Tactics and Coastal Combat published? Yeah, so his first, his first volume, uh, the first edition, was published in the late 80s. I want to say 86. I used the second volume uh, when I taught, which was uh, published in the year 2000. And between uh, the essay contest when I submitted and the publishing of the article this December, he has actually just recently uh, released the third edition. So go go through um, each one of the cornerstones here really really quickly, starting with number one, which is men matter most. Yeah. So the the whole idea of men matter most is that you know uh, leadership. Uh, this is a quote from Hughes: Leadership, morale, training, physical and mental conditioning, willpower, and endurance are the most important elements in warfare. You know, it's the great intangible, the things you you read about these battles. Uh, naval battles, land battles, things all the time against overwhelming odds, and just through the sheer uh, ingenuity of leaders, the enthusiasm of leaders, the energy of leaders, uh, you know, the, the little guy has been able to, you know, beat Goliath. And so one of the, the example I used in my article was um, Admiral Dewey uh, at the Battle of Manila Bay. Uh, he already foresaw some of the issues that were coming if we went to war with Spain. So he, for example, bought his own, uh, uh, procured for his own fleet uh, refuel ships because he knew he wasn't going to be able to pull into, say, uh, other foreign ports once hostility started. And then he just constantly drilled in Hong Kong Harbor. He drilled his, his fleet. And so then he goes on to the Battle of Manila Bay, May of 1898. He crushes the Spanish-Asiatic fleet there. Uh, and later on, he says that the battle was really won training in Hong Kong Harbor and uh, not really in Manila Bay. So, And I think that's a great thing to remember as well in, in a time where um, sometimes in a peacetime Navy, we have um, – we look for different qualities sometimes, and you end up getting a lot of managers. But at the end of the day, managers aren't the ones um, that, that – they're good at training an army like General McClellan maybe. But as far as getting people to do the impossible, that requires true leadership. Um, and so I think that's a great example and something that I think young divos need to remember because I think a lot of times they're just trying to get their quals done and uh, be good managers. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that later in the article that, uh, you know, your new, your fresh-caught J.O. Um, doesn't have the, the luxury or doesn't prioritize uh, learning lessons of history because they're just trying to get, you know, quals and schoolhouse and, you know, just learn what it's like to be a, a naval officer. Um, so, uh, again, I think that's why this, this – well, actually, you, you frame it in the beginning. You say uh, where you're talking about – um, the CNO's lessons of distributed lethality, and he frames it, um, quote, begin problem definition by studying history, end quote. And then you say, 
a rebirth of a bygone approach to uh, unfamiliar to the mid course and junior officer of the post 9-11 Navy. Um, so a bit of a, uh, a knock on, um, you know, the, the, the modern J.O., um, not intended as such, but just, a, uh, you know, a, a fact. Uh, and, and I can lay uh, testimony to that. And I know Bill can as well. Um, so how about the second cornerstone? Yeah, so the second cornerstone is doctrine is the glue of tactics. So uh, what Hughes describes, you know, a comprehensive and practice plan of action. But it's, it's commanders, it, it helps drive commanders' intent. And I thought the great example, and I used the example in the article that, um, that Hughes used in the book, just because I thought it was the perfect example. But uh, basically the Battle of Nile in August 1798, you know, Admiral Nelson was very good at promulgating to his fleet what his intent was, what his doctrine was, um, not just in this battle, but in every battle. And they trained for months to attack the French a certain way. They were going to attack the French. They were basically going to double up on the seaward side, two ships to one French ship. Well, when they finally got there, they realized the French were anchored in such a way that instead of doubling up both on the same side, they could actually send one ship uh, one line of ships down the seaward side and one down the landward side and attack each French ship from both directions, which, again, happened in the heat of the battle. Uh, and Nelson's officers were great at improvising when battle came because they knew what the admiral's intent was. His intent was get next to the French uh, and just pummel them into submission. Uh, if something goes wrong in battle, which it will, uh, that's the intent. However, you have to do that. Do that. And I, I just sort of really thought that that battle was a great example. I mean, they it was a horrible defeat for the French. I mean, their their flagship blew up. Um, so their willingness to you know exploit that tactical lapse uh, and their improv- improvisational strength was really just based on doctrine, right? So their their tactics was centered around doctrine, which is something that now we're getting into because we're really worried about you know anti-axis area denial the cno says in his um in his design he says that decentralized operations are the future guided by commander's intent so this whole maxim that wayne p hughes has been talking about since the 80s this is something that it's on the you know the first page of the cno's uh policy statement on where the where what the navy's mission is so because uh, at the end of the day, the chat rooms and satellite voice comms, we can't rely on those in the future uh, if we're going against a peer-to-peer competitor. Those things could get denied. And so the only way we're going to be able to function autonomously is if we understand what our doctrine is. Yeah, th- that, that's a great point. And I, th- I think you've uh, you're, that, that cornerstone, that doctrine is the glue of tactics, and that example of Nelson and his, his constant communication with his commanding officers, you know, talking with his, the captains under him before they went into battle so that they understood what he wanted to do, what his commander's intent was, and then they could adapt in the heat of battle. I think it's a great example, and it brings to mind a couple of other authors that have been in proceedings this year. Uh, you know, from Admiral Swift uh, talking about mastering the um, the art of command and control, where he talked a lot about 
commander's intent, uh, a lot about how, uh, you know, in a denied environment and when the electromagnetic spectrum is denied and the inability to communicate directly in high bandwidth communications with, you know, upper and lower, uh, you know, up and down the chain of command, you have to know what the commander's intent is uh, and then be able to adapt. Uh, you know, that, this is just a great example of that. And, you know, you're bringing out something that, um, you know, Nelson... Uh, you know, made uh, paramountly obvious in 1798. No, absolutely. Okay. Uh, move on to the third cornerstone, the Battle of Lake Champlain. Yeah, so the third cornerstone is has always been one of my favorites because of the examples. So the third cornerstone is to know tactics, know technology. And this is really one of the, of the cornerstones, I think, that we really uh, need to get better at as a surface force, with, especially with our junior officers and department heads, is we spend a lot of time training people to know their weapons, which is great. But that's only half the, the, uh, the problem. You also have to know what the enemy's capabilities are. And I think uh, at Surface uh, Warfare Officer Department Head School, they've done a good job of trying to include that in the curriculum in the first uh, month, uh, you do a lot of threat stuff based on peer competitors, near-peer competitors. But, like, for junior officers, that's not something that they normally – they're not studying uh, the order of battle of different ships. They're just trying to learn their own weapon systems. But we see with, say, Cap uh, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough here at Lake Champlain in 1814, he realized that his weapons couldn't outrange the British, that they could hit him from a longer distance. They had longer-range guns. And so his plan was to bring them in to fight close because his carronades were better at a short range. He also knew, though, that his ship, his flagship was 11 guns smaller than the British flagship. And so not only did he arrange a plan to try and bring the British in closer for him to use his own weapons, but he actually used an, uh, you know, a great innovative technique with kedge anchors so that when the British started pounding his ship, he could twist basically like a top in position and present a fresh broadside to the British flagship, which is exactly what he did uh, at the Battle of Lake Champlain. So he's in a, in a hard-fought battle. His ship, the Saratoga, with the British ship Confiance, um, you know, his ship's getting kind of banged up. He uses the kedge anchors. He flips like a top. That's something the Confiance can't do. And uh, he ends up winning the day. And by winning that battle, he also... Uh, forced the retreat of the British from Plattsburgh, so their land army also had to retreat as a result of uh, that battle. And the only reason he won it, uh, you know, he outgunned, he had a smaller fleet, he won it because he knew, he knew his technology and he geared his tactics toward it. Which is something I think we're seeing right now, in, especially with uh, the whole idea of uh, surface force strategy and distributed lethality. We're talking a lot more about these value adds to the lethality mix, uh, different weapons we can use, and that's great, and, we, and hunter killer sags, but we also need to know what the enemy can do as well so we can plan accordingly. So I'm curious, uh, this, have you uh, gone through the surface WTI program? I have not, no, but I have served. I, I was a department head with one of the first IAMD witties. Okay. Uh, 
do you feel like that, uh, you know, that tactical understanding and comprehension expertise is starting to filter through the surface fleet? Are the WTIs starting to have the impact that, that uh, the WTIs and, and Top Gun have had over the years on the aviation community? Yeah, I think they do bring something significant to the um, to the wardroom discussion. The problem is always for me, you do a lot of certification events, and so you have to train a lot for these certification events. And a lot of these certification events for your different warfare areas are kind of canned. Um, so when you get the ability to kind of flex the system and you don't have to worry about a certification and you can kind of gear your combat systems training team scenarios accordingly, yeah, I think they bring a lot to the... Um, to the equation, because a lot of these people that are going through and getting WTI, you know, some of them are uh, excited about the program and they get in, but some of them are already pretty experienced people uh, before they even go to the WTI. So I served with an ops who, he was a prior Aegis FC chief, and then had been a stow on the Lake Erie when it was test ship before he even became a witty. So, I mean, his, his body of knowledge, just from his previous experience, plus the intensive witty course, made him absolutely one of a kind on the waterfront. Yeah, that's great. It, it reminds me, I know, you know, Ward and I are both WWW Cold War guys, um, but back in the 80s with, the, you know, the Soviet Navy was a, a very focusing uh, force for the U.S. Navy. And uh, the, the, for the surface Navy, the tactical action officer course, the TAO course, I had friends and classmates who went through that, and they spent a significant amount of time just um, learning the Soviet Navy threat systems, and they had to know them cold. They knew missile profiles, speeds, how they came in, what band radar that they operated in, how to jam them, you know, what the best tactics were, uh, chaff flares, all those things that you had to know to, to defeat and then uh, counterpunch. And so, you know, that was a forcing function when, when you had an, a pure adversary. It sounds like, you know, the, the, you know, the Chinese threat, the Russian threat now are starting to be that forcing function to get people back to the basics of studying tactics and weapons and counter tactics and all that. Well, and that's, and that's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the article not only to identify what I thought was a problem, especially when I was a J.O. The encouraging thing is I think it, we, we're in pretty exciting times, I think, in surface warfare where we are starting to pivot. Uh, I don't think anyone was intentionally doing it based off, you know, Wayne P. Hughes. But uh, in most of these areas, we've seen in the last few years a real pivot towards those and really to the great idea of sea control, which is what it all boils down to. So I think there's actually a lot of uh, encouraging developments that are getting us back on this um, this historical, uh, tactical understanding. All right, so uh, moving on to the fourth cornerstone. Yeah, and the fourth cornerstone, so you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of the post-9-11 officers. I'm one of those guys. I was one of the swaths in a box uh, guys that you read about. Um, and this is one of the ones that we understand really well because most of our career has been built around it, which is the seat of purposes on land. Right. And, and it's a pretty easy concept when you really think about it. Very few times in history do people fight over just water. They're usually always fighting for uh, events that are connected on land. Uh, Hugh says usually in an immediate, direct, and obvious way. And one of my favorite examples of that is the Battle of Valcor Island. Uh, Colonel, Colonel Benedict Arnold, before he was a bad guy, um, the general... Guy Carlton, the British general, was marching down through northern New York. There was a road going by Lake Champlain. Uh, whoever controlled the lake controlled the road. And so Arnold built this makeshift fleet of basically tiny gunboats on 
on the lake, which forced the British to actually stop their advance and, and meet the Americans and build their own fleet. It ended up being a total tactical defeat for America when we lost the battle in October of 1776. But what it really did is it, it delayed the British enough to where they could not make use of the road until after they went into winter quarters. And by the time that we got into 1777, the, um, the political situation and the military situation was uh, different than it had been uh, in the summer of 1776 when Carleton was coming down and we had just lost New York. And so uh, it's important for us to remember that what we do as surface warfare officers is important uh, in and of itself, but we need to think bigger than just our ship. We need to think bigger than just our strike group. What, are, what is our ship or our strike group or our hunter-killer SAG? What's it doing? And most of the time, it's supporting some immediate objective on land. So you also mentioned uh, Admiral Rowden's uh, January 2015 proceedings article as a, a modern analog for uh, what you're talking about with this, uh, this cornerstone. Um, to talk about that uh, a little bit. Yeah, so it says in the uh, in the distributed lethality article, which was fantastic, a uh, huge fan of that article, it says that the whole idea of the hunter-killer SAG, one of its functions is to hold adversary land targets at risk. Um, the whole idea of the upgunned expeditionary strike group uh, it is exactly for uh, securing, or based, based on the understanding that the seat of purpose is on land, um, you know, we've we've kind of gotten away from the idea. I think a lot of naval officers, when they think of meeting the objective on land, they just think of amphibious warfare. And amphibious warfare, unfortunately, in the last, you know, 20, 30 years has not been the priority. It's all been about power projection. It's all about been about strike warfare. But really, I mean, even when you're sitting off um, in the northern Arabian Gulf or, you know, wherever you are supporting carrier operations, those carrier operations are usually supporting some kind of event on land, uh, whether it be in Afghanistan or Iraq, and our whole idea of wanting to get more offensive is not getting more offensive just to, to control the water, but to have sea control that so we can actually uh, achieve a, our objectives on land. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, your fifth cornerstone is a ship's a fool to fight a fort. Talk about that a little bit and about uh, David Farragut at New Orleans. Yeah, and that's a quote from Nelson, uh, which is a great quote. That actually was in, in Hughes' original um, fleet tactics from the 80s. He only had five cornerstones. So in the year 2000, when he updated it, he added this cornerstone. And uh, basically, Admiral Farragut realized that he needed to take New Orleans. The, the whole idea of the Anaconda Plan, split the, the, put this blockade, split the South in half during the American Civil War, uh, really you had to take New Orleans. The problem was the uh, entrance to New Orleans was guarded by two rather impressive forts, Fort St. Philip and Fort Jackson. They had you know, over 120 guns between them. Uh, and Farragut quickly recognized that he really couldn't render these forts ineffective from the, from the sea. And so he said, he thought to himself and said, well, you know what, I can run past them. I might take a few casualties, but once I'm past them, there I've rendered them useless, which is exactly what he did. He ran past them. Uh, in late April 1862, he rendered them ineffective, and he was l later able to take the city of New Orleans without uh, having to fire a shot on the city. And so Hughes says, basically, if a fort is weak, then crush it. If it's strong, avoid it. And that's actually a really practical lesson for today, especially when we're talking about 
you know, potential adversaries that are peer or near-peer competitors. They have weapons that can reach out and touch you. So you need to know where those weapons are located, how they can be launched, uh, what what do they need in order to launch those weapons? Where's the safe zone? What can you do to basically run past it in the 21st century sense of the word? And that's something that we need to understand, that just because someone has a, a, a land site that's very impressive, that has a lot of threat capability, if you know how to render it ineffective, then ultimately you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that Hughes quote you just mentioned sounds like Sun Tzu. If a fort is weak, crush it. If it's strong, avoid it. <laughs> right? It sounds like something right out That's of great uh, advice. Yeah. Tzu, yeah. All right. And the, your final uh, example comes from the Battle of Midway, and the uh, cornerstone is attack effectively first. Yeah, and I think Hughes would say that this is his most important cornerstone. He says that this is the, the very essence of tactical action. So kind of one of the things that a lot of people have heard, you know, all things being equal in land warfare, right, the defender has the advantage. That's not the case in, in naval warfare. Just because you have a different set of circumstances, the geography is obviously very different. Whoever attacks effectively first, and that's the key, effectively, uh, is generally going to win the battle, especially if they're employing cumulative advantage. So he uses the Battle of Midway, or I use the Battle of Midway, uh, because we basically stationed our carriers and launched this assault from a little greater range than we normally would. The Japanese uh, received reports that there was an enemy carrier in the area, and they hesitated to launch. And so uh, we sent in American Devastator torpedo bombers. They didn't do so well. But then our Dauntless Dive Bombers came along and ended up sinking three carriers in rapid succession. And it's all because we attacked effectively first. The Japanese fleet was very capable. They had four carriers with them, but they hesitated when they received reports, uh, and the Americans did not. And in the end, the Americans won the day, and it's, it shifted the entire uh, energy of the Pacific War and really enabled us to start our campaign and eventually get to victory in 45. Well, you also mentioned um, the detail that the initial U.S. assault was uh, not effective and um, he heavy casualties for the uh, Devastator squadron, but that allowed the Dauntless squadron to uh, to sink three Japanese uh, carriers. Yes, and, that, and that's the thing, too, is um, that I think a lot of people don't think, I think a lot of junior officers, when they think of tactics, they only think of of weapon on weapon. But so much of history and so much, so many of the naval battles that we've seen, so much success, uh, you got to use. I think it was General Mattis that said, "Hey, engage your brain before you engage your weapon," and that's kind of the same mentality. There are ways of beating your enemy, um, even if it's a delaying tactic, uh, like we see at the Battle of Alcor Island, or even if it's a um, if it's a count, uh, an attack in one area that's not very effective while the real attack commences somewhere else. And so we need to think a lot less two-dimensionally, I think, than we normally think and start to think, um, what can I do with the assets I have? Which, again, is at the, the whole harm, uh, one of the hallmarks of this surface force renaissance that we're in is use the resources that you have. And if we're going to use the resources that we have, then we're going to have to be creative in how we do that. Jason, uh, your your article is very articulate, and I like the fact, you know, sometimes uh, naval history can be a little daunting to uh, first-time readers or people who think, well, where do I start? There's so many, you know, hundreds of years of naval history, and you've boiled down some great examples 
from history and, you know, six particular examples and, and tied them to these uh, cornerstones. Uh, and, and you made the point at the end here, the Navy must teach its officers the six cornerstones and teach them how to use them as a contextual framework for understanding the tactical past. Uh, you mentioned at the start of the show that you had taught as an ROTC instructor. Where was that? Uh, at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Got it. And you use these cornerstones uh, with your students in uh, naval science? Yes, it's the very first thing I taught them on every quiz, regardless of what the topic was, they had to write them down word for word, and on every test they had to write them down word for word. That's fantastic. They will not soon forget those cornerstones. No, I've run into a few of them in the fleet. And they're, they're like, have, hey, sir, I know them. You know, six cornerstones, A, B, C. Yeah, that's great. Well, and it goes to, in the end, you know, why, why do I value history? It's because history done right teaches you how to think. So I remember um, in 2007, the American Historical Association had a great article on the five C's of historical thinking, right? So change over time, context, contingency, complexity, and causality. And really, when you understand those five things, you can bring those to any problem and try and solve it and fix it. And not only did I mention, you know, want these, write this article so that people could learn history has something to teach us, but what we see with Admiral Dewey at Manila Bay is that we've seen in the past people win battles using history. So we see with Dewey, Dewey was remembered Farragut running past the forts in 1862, and so he ran past the fort at, at Manila Bay in 1898. Uh, he, he took something from the historical past that he understood, and he saw that it worked, and then he used it to win a major naval battle over 30 years later. So history is not just one of these things we look at and we say, oh, it was cool that uh, Admiral Farragut did this. We actually see historical examples of people using history to win battles, and I think that's important to understand as well. That's a great piece of wisdom. Uh, we are running out of time. I wanted to just ask you, um, because your current job is a, is a fascinating one, it's something that is often in the news, this idea of Aegis Ashore uh, in Europe. And so you're a part of uh, an organization, um, a tactical action officer at U.S. Aegis Ashore Missile Defense System in Romania. Tell us a little bit about that job. Well, it's an, it's an exciting job. So the whole idea of – so Aegis Ashore is part of the European Phased Adaptive Approach to that was started by uh, President Obama by executive directive. But the whole idea of Aegis Ashore is to help protect um, your, uh, Europe, uh, so specifically NATO allies and American assets in Europe from ballistic missile attack. One of the big things the Navy's in the news for these days, this is, this is kind of becoming one of our um, really great skill sets. Uh, I just had the privilege of coming off being the uh, weapons officer and combat systems officer on USS John Paul Jones, which was the ballistic missile test ship. And uh, it's just amazing the effort that's gone into this, not only in um, the setting up of this, uh, the ships and commands with uh, Aegis baselines that they have, but also just the, uh, the amazing resourcefulness of our... Uh, the scientists and the contractors. I mean, this is rocket science. It legitimately is rocket science. And to be, or, to be able to hit a small target in outer space with another small target and protect, you know, 10 million lives, that's an amazing, uh, amazing chance and an amazing responsibility. Well, that sounds really exciting. And uh, what part of Romania are you in? So um, when we deploy, we deploy to Devezalu, Romania. Okay, and how far is that from Bucharest? 
Uh, it's about three or four hours. Gotcha, gotcha. Nice place to be. Uh, well, I haven't I haven't been there yet. So I just got to the unit about five months ago. Okay. And do rotational deployments. So got it. Um, I'll, I'll get my chance to see it soon enough. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, we'd love to hear about that after you uh, make a deployment. Uh, write a little bit about it for proceedings, uh, maybe a professional note or something like that, whatever you can share with us. Uh, great to have you on the show today. We've had, uh, again, for our listeners, uh, Lieutenant Commander Jason Fight uh, joined us from uh, Damneck in Virginia Beach. His article in the December issue of Proceedings is called Study the Past to Win Today. Uh, Jason, congrats on being uh, published in Proceedings, and we look forward to whatever you might write for us in the future. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great day, and uh, to everybody, happy holidays. Uh, be safe, drive safe, and remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. 